just a quick question. Uh, this morning, we are about to start a, a new series working through the book of Nehemiah. Who has read Nehemiah recently? I know many of you are tracking with us in our one-year plan, and I looked, I flipped through the plan to see where Nehemiah pops up, and it's like late, so uh, I understand. It's maybe not um, the, the first book that many of us go to in our devotional time. It's maybe not a, a common book, uh, maybe not a, a favorite book for many, and, and that's okay. Uh, but one of the things that we as a church and, and myself personally as a, as a pastor and preacher is we want to eventually, hopefully, preach through the whole Bible. And, and I said that in the first service, I say it now, and as I think about it, man, that's a, that's a lot of ground to cover. But we're going for it. Thank you. <laughs> so this morning we are in the book of Nehemiah, uh, and it's, it's an Old Testament book. Uh, if you have a phone, you don't need to tell me to tell you how to find it. You can just, you know, scroll and click and you're there. If you've got, you know, an old school Bible, if you take your Bible, kind of hold it like this and kind of saw it somewhere right in the middle and flop it open, chances are you'll hit the Psalms, which is a great place. It's a good, good place to be. Just flip back a little bit before that, and you will find Nehemiah. Page 226 in every good Bible. So if you're not there, then uh, we've got another one for you. <laughs> Just for the, for the sake of uh, maybe a, a bit of a teachable moment about our Old Testament, uh, the book of Nehemiah is found in the history section. And when we look at the Old Testament, generally, you can, we can divide it into how different numbers of things, but generally we divide the Old Testament into four sections or four categories. The first is the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. It has to do a lot with the beginnings, obviously with Genesis, and then it, it trails or tracks the kind of the ad adoption of the people of Israel into God's family and their journey that go takes them into Egypt and of course then out of Egypt and and through the wilderness, and, and then to the promised land. And, and the Torah ends, the Pentateuch ends, on kind of the, the verge of stepping into the promised land. Then we've got the, the next section called the historical books. These are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Generally, these are more kind of narrative in style and genre, they're, they're the story of the history of the people of God. And so that's where we find ourselves. After the histories, we find the wisdom books. The wisdom books include Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, which we preach through in the spring. Uh, it is the spring. Uh, we preach through in January, which is not the spring. It's cold. And, and finally, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And then the last major section is the prophets. We've got the major prophets, the minor prophets. That's, again, you can, you can divide the Old Testament in three sections, in five sections, seven sections. Generally, four is pretty good for our uh, intents and purposes today. So Nehemiah is found near the end of the historical books. The main action of this book takes place somewhere around the year 445 B.C., so you know, more than 400 years before Jesus. This is the time when Israel found themselves in exile. Yet, uh, carefully I'll say, they also found themselves with a bit of favor in the conquering nations. It was during this window of history that some of the Israelites that had been exiled, that had been conquered and taken away from Jerusalem, were allowed to go back. And some went back 
a little earlier than Nehemiah and started to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and rebuild the walls around the city is what Nehemiah touches on. And so this book is, is something we should study uh, not just because we are also in a building campaign and Nehemiah goes back to build, and so obviously there's some parallels of building and trusting and all the things that we could do. But this book, as we read it, we're, we're going to kind of spend about six weeks working through it, so we won't touch on every verse, but we'll, we'll hit the, the major parts. One of the things I want you to look for as we journey through here is to watch for the faithfulness and the holiness of God. We want, we want to view this book not through the lens of we're building something and Nehemiah went to build something, but through the lens of faithfulness and the holiness of God. And what we'll see that is that even, through the, even though the people of God were going through all kinds of hardships and pain and, again, exile, right, for, for generations, they were able to see firsthand God fulfilling his promises and some of those prophecies that he spoke through prophets like Jeremiah take place here. So how does that relate to us today? Let me get my, my own Bible open to Nehemiah 1 here. Well, we as well, maybe you've noticed over the last couple of years, we are finding our way, hopefully, finally, out of a time of pain and hardship and, no question, disruption. And so as we, too, rebuild, there's always been, right from the, the March of 2020, there's always been this view of if we can just get back to normal we can just get back to normal. Let me tell you, there is no normal. That normal's gone. It's finished. Things have moved so far, so fast. February 2020 is like a distant history that we'll never get to again. But as we rebuild, as we relearn what it looks like to, to gather as a church and to, to launch ministries, as we said last Saturday, we hosted a marriage workshop here in the room, and it was something that we had canceled at the beginning of COVID. So we're, we're starting to rebuild what ministry in Canmore and the Bow Valley looks like, with things like that, with things like our summer camp. We want to take this time to look at the book of, of Nehemiah and, and, and sure, take some of those building con concepts as well. But we want to see as well how God invites every single one of us to partner with him as he builds his kingdom. There is a spot and a place for everyone in the building of his kingdom. Again, rebuilding is more than construction. It's going to be more than tearing down this building and, Lord willing, building a, another building somewhere else. It's about relaunching. It's about engaging everyone, whether that's in uh, our tech ministry. Thomas would love to have you help him out on the computers back there. I think he and Brian have done an amazing job. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll hit that first. But I, I think they've created it so that the system actually runs more simply then the conglomeration of screens makes it look. Because, uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Thomas would love to help you out back there. Uh, rebuilding, relaunching, reengaging. Uh, I sort of joked with the first service, but it's we're trying to get coffee back up at the back. So if you want to help us launch, relaunch our coffee-making teams for Sunday mornings, if you want to serve with kids or in the nursery or on music teams or uh, host a group or facilitate a group, there are lots of ways that we can engage, not just in like inward-focused ministry opportunities, but also outward-focused evangelistic-type opportunities as well. And so that's what we want to take kind of Nehemiah and the idea of rebuilding and relaunching to mean, okay, God, where do you want me? Are you guys, are you in? 
We, we okay for that? Okay. I got a couple of yeses in both services. We're well on our way. So let's learn from Nehemiah. Uh, one, one more question before we jump in and just talk a bit about the background. Has anybody heard of the Bible Project? No? Okay, well, a few. Good. Excellent. The Bible Project is, uh, was started by, I think, two pastors in, I got it wrong, I should have checked in between the services, I think Washington somewhere, uh, Seattle maybe, or Portland, I know Portland's not Washington, somewhere that part of the northwest U.S., where they've gone and, and they've kind of walked through the Bible, and for every book, or sometimes two books, they have this um, kind of descriptive video, and while they're speaking about the, the background and the setting and the themes, somebody's drawing as well, and so it's a kind of an illustrated um, introduction and overview to, again, they've got one for every book of the Bible now, they've got one for the different genres of literature, they've got one for characters and times and all the things. It's amazing. You can find it at uh, BibleProject.com. And so I asked because I had posted the Ezra Nehemiah Bible Project overview on our Facebook page earlier this week. So have a look at that because it is super helpful to, uh, to, to not just parachute into a book that's okay, it's got to be after Genesis and it's before the Psalms. So what are we talking about here, right? But a bit of background. As we look in our Bibles, we do have Ezra and Nehemiah as two separate books. Originally, they were, they were one. And so often like the Bible Project video, like many commentaries that you can buy, you'll see it, them come just as Ezra Nehemiah as all one big, long story. Uh, I, a quick outline of the two, because they are very tied together. Both of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, take place after King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and took a whole bunch of Jewish people as exiles. You probably recognize the name Nebuchadnezzar from a place like Daniel. The beginning of the book of, of Ezra takes place about 50 years after the exile begins. Okay, so we can kind of plunk that in our mental timelines. And it happens about a year after Persia overtook Babylon. Okay, so this history, things are being, people are being conquered, things are moving around, empires are rising and falling. And these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, record primarily the story of three different particular leaders who oversaw some groups heading back to Jerusalem and the rebuilding process. So the first chunk of Ezra talks about and, and helps us journey with Zerubbabel, who goes back and rebuilds the temple. Remember what the temple was as well, right? It was the, the house of the Lord. It was the hub of the Jewish religion. And so when one nation conquered another, they, they all often, if not always, destroyed the homes of the, the conquered nation's gods, just to show my God's more powerful than yours. And so imagine a people who have been conquered and have watched the house of their God be conquered and torn down. So the first part of Ezra is to go back and rebuild that. And again, imagine what that might do for, um, for the nation's morale. Yeah. Then about 60 years later, so 60 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra, the priest, comes to Jerusalem and starts to restore the teaching of the Torah, starts to teach God's law again, back in the place where the temple has been restored. And then now, as we head into Nehemiah, Nehemiah will come, not this week, spoiler alert, but not this week, he will come back and start to initiate and oversee the building of the walls around Jerusalem, just a few years after Ezra returned. All three of these stories, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, kind of follow a similar flow and pattern. They begin with a king being moved by God, 
the God of Israel, not his own gods, to send this leader back to Jerusalem and supply them with the resources for their construction project. You've got to pray for that end, maybe, as we... Hang on, hang on a second. We're on to something here. After that, each leader, when they come back for their project, they encounter heavy resistance, and it often threatens the rebuilding efforts. Then we watch them overcome that opposition, and the rebuilding or restoring process finishes, and there's a great celebration. So that's kind of the theme that we see happen three times in these two books. And so as, again, I mention all of us to say, as we walk through Nehemiah, we'll often see spots where he's talking about stuff that happened in the book of Ezra. And so we'll see them really tightly connected as we walk through these. Okay, Nehemiah. Before we even get into the book, names in the Bible are so important. They're not haphazardly given. When we watch, especially maybe, maybe God or Jesus rename people, it's significant, right? Well, Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. The Lord comforts. And so we find this, this man serving in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And he's serving as a cupbearer. He tells us this in verse 11. Now, the cupbearer wasn't just simply a butler, wasn't just simply a waiter or a, you know, a, a busboy like we might have in a restaurant today. But it was one of the cupbearer's duties to make sure the king's food wasn't poisoned. So he would sample this food before it got to the king and make sure it wasn't poisoned. Now that makes this position sound like the people are disposable a little bit, right? But, it, but it's, it's way more than that. The same word that, that we read here for cupbearer is used for Joseph in Pharaoh's courts back in the end of Genesis. And how much... How much influence did Joseph have in Egypt in those days, right? Significant, huge. He was second only to Pharaoh, we read. So the cupbearer cup wasn't just a guinea pig, wasn't just a crash test dummy to try to make sure the king was okay. They were responsible for many things. And in this, in this case especially, what happened to the king's food, where it came from, how it was prepared, how it got to the king. So the cupbearer would have, would have been a trusted high-ranking official in the court. He's part of the team, which is remarkable that this Jew would have been trusted, held responsible, given responsibility in this Persian court. So that's, that's significant. But as we'll also see as we look at his character itself, that Nehemiah is someone who will exemplify for us, who will show us a deep trust in the Lord even though he's many miles and many years away from Jerusalem. So let's read. Nehemiah 1. Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses here. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. So he's at the king's winter palace kind of thing in Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. He knew that stuff was supposed to be going on. And so he said, give me the goods. How are things? And they said in verse 3, the remnant in the province, those who survived the exile, those have now been sent back, they're in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. Right here, actually, is a way that we can see the tie back to 
Ezra. The walls broken and the gates burned could very well have been from the opposition we found in Ezra chapter 4. There we read that, that opponents of that first building effort, opponents of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, had, had sent a, a, a letter to King Artaxerxes who ordered that reconstruction to stop. And then when that order came down, the enemies, quote, forcibly stopped them. I don't think it would have been like putting a cease and desist notice on the wall and then everything just stopped. But sometime later, it seems like, like Nehemiah is expecting that there should be some good news. It seems that he knew that, that something was going on. There were reconstruction efforts, perhaps. You know, he knew that the, the temple was supposed to have been being rebuilt and, and the law was being taught and all these things. God is being faithful. God is doing these things. Tell me, tell me how it's going. And instead, the report comes back that the people are in trouble, great trouble and disgrace. The walls broken, still broken. The gates are burned. We don't have walls around our cities these days, so maybe that doesn't hit us like it should. But if a city didn't have a wall around it, if it didn't have gates that it could close when the sun went down and that sort of thing, it was incredibly vulnerable. There would have been nothing to stop any number or any size of enemy to come and do whatever it wanted in that once great city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is gutted. We can learn so much from what he does next. He's, he's overcome by grief, and the first thing he does is he turns to God. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Imagine the emotion that you're expecting good news and the, just the, the crushing weight of what comes, and he just falls to his chair, falls to his knees. As I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Look at how, how passionate he is for God's people, how interested he is in the kingdom of God being restored to, to the glory that it, that it ought to have. His heart breaks, and when his heart breaks, he doesn't just, doesn't just change the channel. He doesn't just flip the page in the newspaper to go to something happier, something, something a better story that he'd rather listen to. Instead, he is deeply emotionally moved, and he allows himself to feel those things. And sit in the weight of it. Then he breaks into prayer and fasting. That's his first response. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't, doesn't talk to others. He doesn't try to go make a plan. He doesn't hop on his social media feed and start tweeting out the hashtag thoughts and prayers, restore Jerusalem. He goes straight to God first. And so here's Here's what I've been reminded of this week and hopefully continue to learn through this. When I look at the world around me, when I look at our town, when I look at the, at the shops and you know, some of the flags that are raised at town hall and in the windows of our shops and these sorts of things, when, when I look at our schools, when I look at the hookup culture that's so prevalent, when I look at the materialism, when I took it uh, at the people chasing the next high, whatever that is, whether that's, that's food or drink or drug or achievement or whatever it is, my first response ought to be to pray, to fall to my knees and pray. When we hear of great trouble and disgrace, maybe this is expanding a little bit what, you know, this was, Nehemiah was responding to God's people, but when we look at the world around us, we hear of great trouble and disgrace of the gospel, we fall to our knees and pray. Jim Hamilton writes, 
If we love God and the advance of his glory, we will feel deep sorrow when the advance of the gospel is halted, and we will be disciplined and diligent to fast and pray. I don't know about you, but I have got room for growth here. This is also an area that we can build one another up in. When we get together on a Sunday morning, when we get together during the week, however we run into one another, and we, we have this moment to, to share, whether it's a, a larger group, a smaller group, a, a significant amount of time, just a short run-in at the grocery store, wherever, whatever it might look like, and we share a bit of our lives with one another. And when we hear about hard things, whether in our lives or how we're wrestling with know, how to parent, how to retire, how to work, whatever it might be, right? What if our default trended towards, let's pray about that right now? Again, I don't know about you, but hopefully not often, but, but sometimes I'll, I'll hear a story and be like, I'll pray for you. And then my phone beeps, someone else comes to talk to me, whatever else, and I've completely forgotten. So what if we tended towards, let's pray now. And even just take a couple minutes right then and there and just lift that thing up to God. There's so much that we can learn from Nehemiah, even in this first little bit, and in his prayer to come. But the first thing is this. When bad news comes, his first response is to pray. He doesn't go tell others. He doesn't distract himself from the bad news. He doesn't try to fix it himself either. He goes to God. He, he casts his worries and anxieties on God. 500 years later, Peter would tell us to do the same thing, wouldn't he? 1 Peter 5, give all your worries, cast all your cares, cast all your anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for you. And so when, not if, but when we encounter bad reports or difficulties, and when we see the brokenness in the world around us, our first response should be prayer. It shouldn't be our last, last resort. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. In the same way, when, not if, but when we experience God's goodness and God's blessing, prayer and thankfulness should also be our first response. So we learn to pray from Nehemiah. The second thing we can learn is that uh, even before we get into the content of his prayer, we can see that Nehemiah is a dedicated, devoted, and disciplined prayer. Here's how I know this. Verse 4, he says, and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Now, when you hear the phrase, a number of days, how many days do you think that might be? Three? I'm with you there, Trevor. Anyone else? What, a number of days. What's that? A week? Okay. Anybody else want to hazard a guess? You guys aren't allowed because you heard this before. Okay, we've got three, we've got a week. Now, we can, we can ballpark this number of days. I know you've heard me say before, there are no wasted words in the Bible. So let's look at this. In verse 1, we read that uh, it was in the month of Chislev that he got the news. Right? Remember that? Nehemiah 1.1. If we take that, the Jewish calendar and we plunk it on our own, we can kind of guesstimate that that's somewhere between November and December in our calendars. Okay? November, December. If we then go to where the action starts to take place, where, where Nehemiah stops his working and starts to actually do something, that came out wrong. Praying is significant, but there's like action starts to happen. At the beginning of chapter 2, how does chapter 2 open? During the month of Nisan, 
in the 20th year. Well, if we take that from their calendar and we plunk it onto our, the calendar that we're all familiar with, we know that that month falls somewhere in March or April. So when he says a number of days, he's talking about somewhere between 90 and 150 days. That's a number of days. That's way beyond any number of days I think I've ever prayed for anything. And I know some of you are like, easy, Sean. I... I, I I've prayed for three or four things for a number of days. I got things going on right now that I've been praying for at least this number of things. I know that some of you are amazing, incredible, devoted prayers, and I'm so thankful for you. But let that number hit you for a second, for those of us that struggle with that. 90 to 150 days. Now, we live in a culture that thrives on the instant. We want everything, and we want it right now. Think about this. When I go home for lunch, uh, you know, maybe I've missed lunch and got to pull something out of the fridge, put it in the microwave, warm it up for myself. I take that thing out of the fridge, I walk over to the microwave, I open the door, put it in, close the door, and I look at that clock and I think to myself, self, what is the absolute minimum number of seconds I can put on this machine before my food is warm enough to consume? First of all, I'm putting it in a microwave, not an oven, all right? So I'm already impatient. Then I pick the bare minimum number of seconds I can do it. And when I hit start, every time, unless I've been distracted and walk away, every time I pull that door open before that minimum number of seconds has even finished. I just, I'm hungry, I need to eat. When I head, to the, head online and I, I go to a website and it, it seems like it's not loading, it's taking more than like two seconds to load. I know the internet is faster than this. I don't have the, you know, the dial-up line screaming in the background that something's happening. This should be going. So I mash that reload button. Come on, come on, get, get going. When I order something online, maybe this is just me. I know there's a couple of us that order uh, and we see smiley boxes show up at our, yeah, Thomas, there he is back there. He, he knew I was talking about him. When I order something online, Shipping companies, they're pretty good. They, they've got the system down. They know how long it gets to get, to get their thing from point A to point B. And they tell you right away, right? You can expect this in probably a week. Unless it's coming from Toronto. That's another message for another day. But why do I every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, open up that shipping receipt and keep hitting track, track purchase, track purchase. Where is it now? It was in Calgary this morning. It should be on a truck. It says it's on a truck. Why isn't my doorbell rang? I just can't wait. Anybody else or is it just me? Okay, just... Okay. I, I, remember, I remember growing up, and I said in the, the first service, I remember my dad saying this. I can't remember if it was when I was in trouble or not. Probably both. It's a phrase that works in many contexts. He said, I don't want it now. I want it right now. Or don't, don't do that now, Sean. Do it right now. All right? That's what we want. I forget, forget now. I want this right now. There's an article in the Boston Globe a little while ago where the author wrote, a lot of things that are really valuable take time. But immediate gratification that I need this right now, forget the microwave I'm opening up, Immediate gratification is our default response. And it's difficult to overcome those urges and be patient and wait for things that come over time. Our whole culture is devoted in, to efficiency and making things happening. And it says, 
whatever you want, go get it and get it right now. No need to wait for these things. If you feel like you should have something, go get it. Go after it. Now, I don't have to work hard to convince you that that life, that culture, that desire for instant gratification will and does spill over into our spiritual lives as well. My impatience with Amazon can bleed into my impatience with the Lord. When we experience trials and hardships and seasons where not everything is up, to the, up and to the right, we need to patiently enter into the process of seeking God and waiting on Him and His timing. Just because we don't see immediate results from our prayers doesn't mean God didn't hear them. It doesn't mean God's not at work. It doesn't mean God's not doing something that we just can't see. Just because we don't see immediate results from starting a new spiritual discipline. Jesus, I prayed three mornings in a row. Why aren't all my prayers answered and everything is going well? Just because we don't see immediate results from resisting temptations for a few hours or a day or a week. God, why is this still a problem? Just because we don't see immediate results, we cannot quit. We cannot give up. We can take this lesson from Nehemiah and persevere and walk by faith. He was a dedicated, devoted, disciplined prayer. What we have for the rest of the chapter is his prayer, and it's a beauty. And I think we could do a series, a multi-week series, on just this prayer. This is a, a passionate prayer. And the emotions that Nehemiah describes when the news hit him in verse 4 come out in this prayer. But even more than that, if we look at what Nehemiah prays, we see that he has a deep understanding of who God is. He has a, a deep understanding of the Bible, and he wants to see, he longs to see the scriptures fulfilled. This is a theologically rich prayer. Yeah. So what does this teach us today? Jim Hamilton, again, who's a pastor and commentator uh, and professor, says this. If we would feel the kind of zeal for the church that results in weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, just like Nehemiah did, right? If we would feel, uh, if we would have that kind of zeal for the church in response to reports about how the enemies of the gospel have attacked God's kingdom, we should seek to understand the scriptures and pray that God would cause us to long for their fulfillment. Let me ask you this. Has anyone noticed that the gospel is under attack? Maybe a little bit. Okay, a couple of us. Has anyone noticed that a biblical worldview and an understanding of how the world works is under siege by the culture around us? Okay, a couple more. Good, that's good. Or have you noticed that the teachings of Jesus and his kingdom are either being pushed to the outskirts or the, the, the outer margins of society or actually co-opted to sound as though you can have the kingdom without the king? Have you noticed that? We, we, we kind of repackage the teachings of Jesus because they're, they're good, but we don't want this pesky king telling us how to live in other areas of our lives. Have you noticed that? When we see that, our, our first response shouldn't be to, to fight with the politicians, to petition the schools, to argue with the science, or to argue from science or philosophy, or to argue the logical fallacies that we see all around us, even though all of those things have their place. Our first response should be to turn to God with weeping and mourning and fasting and praying and seeking to understand the scriptures and praying that God would do only what he can do. 
In this prayer, we see that Nehemiah has a deep understanding of who God is and that he has a thorough knowledge of God's word. Look how this prayer starts in verse 5. He says, he prays, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love and keep his commands. Nehemiah knows who Yahweh is. He starts off kind of calling God to do what he has promised to do. He, he's kind of reminding God, God, this is who you are. You're a God that keeps your covenant. You're a God that, that loves He's kind of reminding God, even though God doesn't need to be reminded like I need to be reminded of things. It's not like God forget, right, I promised Abraham this thing, and then I promised Moses, and I promised David these things, and sorry guys, I just forgot. It's not like that at all. He's asking God to do what God is committed to do. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his love. God is unwavering in his devoted, faithful love to those which he has covenanted with. And Nehemiah appeals to this. If there's one solid thing that we can appeal to in this world, it is God and his character. His word, who he is, what he says he'll do is rock solid. His commitment to his covenant doesn't waver like our commitments to our contracts might. His his commitment doesn't waver depending on the day or the time of year or, or the way the wind's blowing. If he says he'll do something, he'll do something. The prayer continues, verse 6, Let your eyes be opened and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer, and that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you and not kept the commandments and statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah knows the story. He knows the scripture. This prayer opens from a reminder of who God is and moves right into confession. And the words that he is praying here, these confession words are based on the teachings back from Deuteronomy 4 and Leviticus 26, where Moses met with God and God promised him and Moses prophesied to the people that if Israel turned their backs on God, they would be scattered. And Nehemiah is living out that. The nation turned from God. They went their own way and they were exiled. He's scattered. He's far from where God wanted his people to be. So he acknowledges this, and he prays a prayer of confession, not just for himself, but for his people. When he says, my father, my father's people, that's not just like his immediate family. He's, he's praying for the people of God. Let me ask this. How well do we do that? Pray prayers of confession. Maybe, maybe we're not even great at confessing our own sin. But how well, how well do we pray for the sins of others, too? There's something to that, I think. A helpful definition of confession that I came across this week is simply this. Confessing is agreeing with God that we sinned against him and perhaps others as well. Now, it is, it is good for us to keep short accounts with God and confess our own sin, 100%. But let me suggest that it's probably a good thing for us to confess and pray for others around us as well. Now, there's... there's there's some biblical precedent to intercede for others, right? Nehemiah's modeling this for us. God, I confess the sins of my father and my father's family. Jesus modeled this for us too. 
Think of some of the last words he said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, that little prayer is a whole other message or series in itself too, isn't it? But he he was praying for the sins of others. Maybe, Maybe we need to do that. Then having confessed sin, Nehemiah calls on God to remember the but from those Deuteronomy and Leviticus passages. You've heard me say this before. It might come across a little crass, but because it's maybe bordering that way, you'll remember it. The buts of the Bible are the best, right? Think of, think of Ephesians. I was here, but God. Look at this section here, verse 8. Remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. Nehemiah was like, I know, we're scattered. You, you, you held up your end of the bargain there. But what did you say next? But if you return to me, this is God saying through Moses to his people, but if you return to me and obey my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I've chosen my name to dwell. Why is Nehemiah so emotionally affected in verse 4? Because he knows the Bible. He knows what God has called his people to. He knows that the reason they're in, the place they're in, is because they've done exactly what God warned them against doing. But he also knows that God promised to bring them back. I love uh, this challenge from Jim Hamilton in response to this, this prayer. For us, he says, Do you want to love God, God's kingdom, and the advance of the good news of God's triumph in Christ? Do you want the strength of character to look at a desperate situation full in the face and have the wherewithal to do something about it? He says, fill your mind with the Bible. That's how Nehemiah prayed. He knew what God had spoken, and he, he, he said that back to God. It's not like he, hey God, do this. You said you would. It's not, a, not an, an arrogant thing Nehemiah is doing. We are, are surrounded by so many half-truths and blatant lies about, about us, about God, about creation, about how we relate, all these things. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy, an adversary, who wants nothing more than to what? Steal, kill, and destroy, and to keep feeding us lies and lies and lies to separate us from this God who promised to draw us back out of exile. And our enemy's schemes haven't really changed at all from the very beginning of human history, where he, he snuck up to Eve and said, did God really say the same thing he says to us. Did God really say, get married first? Did God really say, there's only two genders? Did God really say, you should tithe? Didn't God say, enjoy life? Did God really say, it's the same lie. And so we need to be constantly constantly filling our minds with the truth of God's word so that we can spot the lies of the enemy. I, again, I've probably used this analogy before. Or you've probably heard it before. Those who work in like countries' treasury branches where they deal with counterfeit money, they don't study the counterfeits, right? They study the real thing. And they know that real thing so well that when a counterfeit crosses their desk, they know instantly what's wrong with it. That's what we're called to do too, to know 
the real truth so well that when the counterfeit comes across on Twitter or in the news or in the shops or wherever it is, we know instantly that, sound, that even sounds good, but it's not right. We can spot the fake. Nehemiah knows who God is. Nehemiah has a deep understanding of his word, and he has a deep concern for God's people. Look at verse 10. He's praying for them. He prays, you you promised that you would draw them back even if they were banished to the farthest horizon because they are your servants and your people, the ones you redeemed by your great power and strong hand. Now this might sound a a little bit strong for some of us with, with five game sevens having been played yesterday and tonight in the NHL playoffs. But if you and I care more about our favorite hockey team than we do about people coming to know the gospel, it's probably because our identity is being shaped by something other than the Bible. And I had a great time with a friend watching Game 7 last night. So I, you know, I'm in this. If we have, have more knowledge, more passion, more uh, emotion directed to whether it's the Oilers last night or the Flames tonight or, or any number of things, if we have more passion directed to something else rather than getting our, our neighbors to know Jesus or more passion for the, the Stanley Cup than, than the two billion, billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus, we need to stop. I need to stop and confess and repent and again devote myself to following the God of the Bible living out his loving kindness and living out who he says I am. And again, Nehemiah is such a great example of this for us. He is in exile. He is a long way away from the land God gave his people. He is living in a place with little or no respect at all for the God of Israel. And yet he doesn't mourn or grieve like somebody who's lost everything and has lost all hope. Instead, he mourns because it seems like God's enemies are prevailing and he calls on him to do something about it. It's a long way from home, but he longs to see God's kingdom come. He knows who God is. He knows what God has promised. His heart breaks for those who need to know God. And as we'll see in coming weeks, he's going to do something about it. Look at verse 11. He says, Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who you delight, who delight to revere your name. Grant your servant success. Okay, I'm, something's going to come. Help me succeed in this, God. And grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this ancient text from 2,500 years ago where the story was written, where the story took place. Thank you that we can, can learn so much today from, from this man, from Nehemiah. We can learn to, to pray first. We can learn to be devoted to you. We can learn to pray more, longer, be diligent, be disciplined in our prayers. We can learn t- from him that, that we need to know who you are. We need to to, to dive into the word, to, to know the word, to know the truth so that we can spot the fakes all around us. Jesus, thank you that you came to show us who God was, who God is, excuse me. That you walked this earth as we do, that you were tempted by all sorts of untruths and that you remained holy and righteous and never sinned. You went to the cross in our place, taking on our sin, our rebellion, and you paid the price paid the penalty 
for all the for all the things that I've put over and above you in my life, all the ways that I've turned away. And so, Father, forgive me. Forgive us when we have walked away. Draw our hearts back to you. Remind us of your goodness, of your holiness, of your character, and of your presence with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.